Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing? Well, I'm here. I'm glad that we're able to be here together recording. Um, my obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but my school has been canceled the next two weeks, so I have some time to think and research and learn and write. Yo. I will be missing people. Yeah. I will be lonely a little bit. I will not be missing people. I've been training my entire life for this moment, so I'm enjoying the isolation, but I'm not enjoying the effect of that Rona on folks out there. So, yeah, it's kind of crazy out there, man. Um, I, I think everybody has heard by now, but in the off chance you've been living under a rock, basically everything is canceled. Like Except my student loans. Except their student loans. Yep, everything. <laughs> except your student loans. So... I don't know what came first. I don't remember what came first, but I remember it was shortly after they declared a state of emergency here in Massachusetts. We got the notification that conference was being canceled. Well, I mean, not canceled, but only a virtual conference. Like nobody will be going to the Mm -hmm. conference center. That announcement came like a day or two after I booked my plane ticket to Utah. So like now I got to get that whole thing sorted. The MTC has been like evacuated. Like nobody's staying at the MTC. Um, church meetings worldwide have been canceled. Like, mm-hmm. did they put a time on that or they just... They said um, until further notice. Until further notice. We won't be going to church. So no sacrament for the next whoever knows how long. We're just going to be wallowing in sin for the foreseeable future. So, um, yeah, man, coronavirus, it's it's out here and it's... It's messing up every. It's messing with everybody's lives. I really hope you guys are staying safe out there, especially yeah. y'all with, especially y'all with kids, especially y'all with jobs that you know you can't do remotely. Just we'll be we'll be praying for you guys. I know it's it's gonna be harder on a lot of y'all than others. So, <sighs> yeah. What else is going? Is anything else going on, Derek? Or has coronavirus just really been dominating our news cycle? Yeah, that's been dominating the news cycle. That's uh, dominating. Our toilet paper supply. <laughs> so um, I saw this. I saw this thing on the internet a little bit ago, and I almost made a super inappropriate joke on my own social media. But I'll just put it here because this is our show. Okay. But so um, it turns out that in Italy, Pornhub has donated free premium accounts to everybody in Italy because they're stuck inside due to the coronavirus. Yeah. And what I was tempted to say was. Well, I guess I know where all the toilet paper's going now. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Yo. Uh oh. So yeah, I don't know. Like now, all my friends are bragging about having bidets or getting bidets. Like, I I don't understand the obsession with the toilet paper, but you know, y'all y'all do what y'all got to do. Um, I've been ready. Like I've had a bug in bag for the last year and a half. I'm good for a month or so, but if this goes beyond that, I'm in trouble. So, yeah. so we have fifteen rolls of toilet paper here. Awesome, and but that probably will last two to three weeks ish. I think. Okay. Um, I went to Costco, and there was no toilet paper. Dude, uh, I went shopping just to get some milk and cereal, like just a couple of days ago. It was like later at night. It was like nine or so. I didn't think there'd be a lot of people at the supermarket, so I thought it was a good time to go. I went in. These checkout lines were insane, man. I wouldn't be shocked if coronavirus gets spread just by these people trying to shop for their <laughs> doomsday supplies. Oh, the irony, yeah. man. 
but yeah, the 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 shelves were just gutted, man. Like, like locusts came. Yeah, man. Like everything was just gone. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. Just they they said at least in the shop that uh, I frequent, there's like a star market by my house. There's probably going to look like that for at least the next four days or so. So uh, wow, it's it's a mess, man. It's a mess out here. Um, again, I just hope everybody stays safe out there. Ah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about some wisdom from the Book of Mormon on this. All right. What you got for us, Dad? So if you look at Alma chapter 32, so Alma's, uh, this is where Alma speaks to the Zormites because they were expelled from the synagogues. They could not meet in their usual place because of their poverty. Ah, okay. And so there's, there's Alma's whole thing about experimenting, having this, you know, plant the seed and see what happens. And then Amulet comes in chapter 34 of Alma, and let me just turn to that real quick to talk about what to do and how to navigate this because we're in a situation where we can't meet regularly. We can't. Uh, some of our stuff is all disrupted. Yep. And now here's what. Um, and here and here I like this as a queer person because Amulek tells the people to pray from their from their closets. And, you know, we have to do that. <laughs> All right. Although I'm not in the closet anymore, but there's a lot of people in the church that need to pray from their closets. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, let's go to Alma 34 real quick. And it says here, um, starting at, well, verses, this is chapter 34, verses 18 through 25. Basically, cry out to God from your fields, flocks, houses, morning, midday, evening, cry against the devil, cry over your clo- crops. And then verse 26, but this is not all. You must pour out your souls in your closets and your secret places and in your wilderness. Yea, and when you do not cry unto the Lord, let your hearts be full, drawn out in prayer unto him continually for your welfare and also for the welfare of those who are around you, which that's really relevant here. We need to take care of one another. At this time of social distancing, we need a spiritual nearing Mm. and reaching out to each other spiritually, virtually, all those other things. Yes, sir. And then in the next verses, I'm not going to read them, it talks about if any people are uh, sick, afflicted, or hungry, we have to impart of our substance to them or else everything about us is a hypocrite. Right, right. I remember a long time ago you said something along the lines of if we uh, only worry about checking off the boxes of covenant. It was during that whole covenant path thing. You know, you were making a lot of points about the covenant path. You said something along the lines of if we're not making an effort to feed the hungry, take care of the sick, and all these other things that are Christ-like, only worrying about checking off the boxes, then we miss the entire point of the covenant path. We miss the entire point of what the covenant is, and I thought that was brilliant and poetic. I keep telling Derek he's got all this poetry in him and like mm-hmm. needs to write more. So like, Derek, write more. That's yes, how I'm going to encourage be, you to be a better more, theologian. Yeah. Do some more writing. Uh, and this is obviously a, a central Christian principle. Like most people think the centrality of Christianity is to, you know, be mean to the homos, which that's what a lot of Christians <laughs> think it is. But really, if you look at Jesus's example, you really see that a central value in Christianity is rearranging your lives for the sake of the vulnerable. And that's mm. what we're asked to do at this time. Yeah. To self uh isolate to not go to church to not in my case go to work to not go to concerts and theaters and all the stuff like we are arranging our lives and some of us like 
Like, I'm fairly young. If I get this, I probably won't die. I don't right. have other health concerns. But that's not the point. The point is we have been asked to do the Christ-like thing and rearrange our lives for the sake of those who are more vulnerable. And that mm. is exactly what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 15 with the leaving the 99 in order to, to take care of the one. Right, right. Sheep. So I think that's we're given a chance to really show our glory as saints and show that we are serving one another, loving one another. Um, yeah. Leave it to Derek to find a gospel parallel to be made <laughs> that's my in job. the pandemic. I know it's your job, but still, <laughs> yeah. it's still it's still just such a pleasure to just see how your mind works and watch what you do next. Watch oh, what I don't think you, you want to see next. exactly how my I mind don't. works. <laughs> but even still. Even still, though, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, Even still, like, uh, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for reminding us and using the Book of Mormon to do so that uh, we have a responsibility to each other at this time of pandemic and panic. So, uh, yeah, thank you. for Well, I wanted to say one other thing about this, because a lot of memes online are circulating with this very, very interesting theology of like, oh, isn't it great that we have a living prophet who knew about this before it was going to happen and oh, yeah. told us to be home-centered and yes. told us to eat our vitamins and yes. said that this is going to mo- be the most historic conference ever. And I'm like, how do I react to that as a theologian? And one of the first things I would say is we have to look at how the prophetic office is characterized. For example, I think it's in DNC sections 9 where it says study it out in your mind and then you know, ask of God, and if it be right, God will reveal it to you. If not, you'll get a stupor come over you. So the what I take from that is our prototype of a prophet here in, in the last dispensation is Joseph. And it the way it worked for him is he had to actually do his homework. He had to, to, to come up with this and then take it to the Lord. And I think the same thing is true here for, our, for the prophets today. They didn't just randomly come up with the idea to, to close church. Right. I am absolutely certain that they listened to consultants, to scientists, to medical professionals, the CDC, the World Health Organization. They probably researched this very, very carefully and talked to a number of people. They did their homework. This this just didn't plop down from li- like lightning from heaven on them. Uh-huh. They did their homework first. Yeah. And then they were inspired to make this change based on the best available evidence. Now, that's, I think... A real thing because so much of being a prophet is getting out of the way of your own ego and getting out of the way of your own sense of knowledge and saying look I don't know everything I'm going to go to the experts on this I'm going to go to they probably trusted people outside the church for yeah. these things right that takes humility as a prophet of God so the that's really when you're the most the mouthpiece of God is when you get out of the way of your own ego and say look I have the humility to say I'm going to research this. I'm going to go to these sources, the best available science that's there. Okay. And I think, what? I was just going to say, like, not to belabor this point because, you know, we do it all the time on this show. But if we're going to say that, then what is to be said for those who, like, especially in the midst of all this that is going on with CES schools, if the prophets are going to do that when it comes to the coronavirus why can't they do that like use the best information available appeal to authorities appeal to people who actually have knowledge on the subject and have experience with the subject when it comes to 
the marginalized members of the church, particularly members of the LGBTQ community, and especially those who are members of the church, and especially those who are attending CES schools. You're asking me why why that's not the same. I'm not asking you why it's not this. I'm not asking why it's not the same. I'm specifically asking, I suppose, if we, if that is the right thing to do for a prophet, if that is the good thing to do for a prophet in that in this particular situation when it comes to the coronavirus then why can't they do that for members of the community, the LGBTQ community? And what, do you, what would you say to those uh, members I, of that community who may be struggling with what you just said? Well, there's, there's two things. One is like what the, what the leaders of the church should or shouldn't be doing, and then what the marginalized people, what the response should be. All right. I really wish that... Um, that we had more room to uh, to allow. Um, I loved I loved the, what Reverend Doctor Fatima said to talking to say we can allow our prophets to make mistakes. Uh huh. And um, and then I think she changed the wording on that and then rephrased it a different way. She did. And then, but I think what what it is is we're allowing ourselves to use the best of what we're allowing is to still use the best in what our prophetic and apostolic authorities give us and not throw out the baby with the batter bath water. That's right. what we're allowing ourselves. We're allowing right. us to um, realize that if there be any mistakes, they're the faults of men and we're not going to use that to deny the power of God working through them. I think that's yeah. where you have to thread the needle. Right. That reminds me of something that, uh, you know, the co-author of Book of Mormon for the Least of These, Margaret Olson Hemming, she also said that you don't want to throw everything out because 10% doesn't work. You know, you hold on, even if it is just 10%, you hold on to the 10% that mm -hmm. works while discarding the 90% that doesn't. And in this particular case, you can hold on to everything that works and let go of that which doesn't work and still be completely fine mm -hmm. because that is... I mean, that's basically the way the prophets have always operated. That's the way the people that have been under the prophets have always operated. They never threw the whole institution out just because that 10% was not working for them. Yeah, and in the case of the um, the LGBTQ community, there's just going to be many right answers of how to respond, and mine's only one of them. Uh -huh. And mine is to tap deep into the dignity that I know independently of any other human on earth and solidify my dignity in in that foundation directly uh -huh. on God um, through the knowledge of the scriptures there's a lot of resilience and empowerment that I find there which really helps me because whenever I'm not afraid you know people ask well you know where the church where the, where is the church gonna go with this like are we gonna is there gonna be change in the future like all of these other questions and I'm not worried about the future I'm not afraid of the effects on me of of Elder Paul Johnson's letter. And here's why. is because I am entrusting an unknown future to a known God. Mm. Because I know the Lord. No one can, like, imagine someone trying to, to tell me that I don't know what the scriptures say. Like, <laughs> imagine someone to tell me that I don't know the Lord who led me into this church through a almost miraculous process like I know the Lord there's nothing that's gonna make me miss a step in in my journey hmm. like no one can take away that from me. it's kind of like a magic trick once you know how the magic trick is done you can't ever unknow uh, 
the the, the mystery, mystery, right? Right. Like, once you know, like you can't unsee that. You can't unknow that. And I, there's nothing that Elder Johnson can say that can make me unknow my honored place as a child of God sent here by a God who I I wouldn't have come here to this planet if I didn't know back then that there was a place for me in the plan of salvation. Obviously, I bought into it. There's a place for me. Right. Now, Elder Johnson may not know what it is yet, but that's not going to stop me. And um, I also think that God never would have sent me here to this planet only to forget me. That just doesn't make any sense. Right. So right. that's kind of my reaction to it is reclaiming dignity on my own terms and saying, you know, there's um, something here that that the that Elder Johnson just doesn't know and just uh, doesn't understand, and he hasn't done the homework, so his, his results don't have the validity or legitimacy that they would have had if he said, "Okay, I did my homework, I I know what's going on, and here's what we do about it, and here's what it, it's just not there. Mm. It's just not there." And in the case where we can't trust, or where in the case where the quote unquote authorities do not have that legitimacy. I I don't want to say, or rather, I don't want to ask what is the, I mean, I kind of do want to ask it. What is the appropriate course of action where someone like Paul Johnson has lost legitimacy? What is, I suppose, the proper way forward when our leaders have, for lack of a better phrase, lost legitimacy? Well, I think what one piece of advice would be to, um, figure it out what it is you, what it is you're most afraid of doing and do it anyway do it with others and sing your way through it and we'll all be okay in the end mm. because i think there's a terror that comes from i i think the terror of not being yourself is worse than the terror of any punishment they can give you there it is again poetry derek i love it because yeah you you theoretically could be at BYU and lose your housing lose your degree lose your everything but that's stuff that i think is is worth losing if it comes down to you lose your soul and you lose this who you are that that you can't you know it's like what jesus said what does it profit you to gain the whole world and lose your soul Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think that what, what we have to liberate the lgbt people well, yes, from the sort of the consequences and the punishment, but we also have to limit, liberate LGBTQs from the terror that those things hold. I am not afraid of anything anyone in this church can do to me. Mm-hmm. And, like, I, I have um, elevated myself to that level of security. Like, what, what are they going to do to me? Like, even President Oaks could, you know do whatever he wants he could like dump a bucket of worms on me and call me a homo i'm like yeah so what you that does not get inside me Mm -hmm. um and i and nothing it's like if i told you you have a carrot on the top of your head and called you a carrot head you wouldn't even look up because you know it's false right it you wouldn't be hurt by that you yeah, what kind of insult is carrot head anyway? Well, you've got a carrot on the top of your head. <laughs> I can see it right there. Like, do you believe me? You don't. You know it's wrong. Right. You know it's false. Once you are convinced of who you are, um, now this works for me. It may not work for everyone else. But once I'm convinced of who I am, no one can can take that away. 
Mm. And that's kind of my response to what do we do when the prophets, I think there's a, I hate to say we should have patience with them because, because that's kind of weird, but there is a sense in which once we hold out by patience, I mean, don't let them do whatever they want. It's a patience of accountability and expectation saying, look, I'm going to give you this room and I'm expecting you to do the right thing Mm -hmm. in due time. And having that type of patience, expecting the best from them, is probably the best thing that signal they can get in order to do the right thing as soon as possible. Mm. Because they, they're trapped as well. Like They don't even think it's possible to rethink this. Yeah. And I think they're trapped more than, than uh, some of us are. Mm. It would be a great conversation to just talk a little bit more about how we can help people get to this point of uh, confidence and self-assurance in the gospel, regardless of what may be going on you know, in the church or out in this world, things that would otherwise unaffirm them or just simply not affirm their identity or their authentic way of living. I really, I really Mm. think that a lot of people would have something to gain from that. I want to bring this back to the coronavirus because, (laughs) okay. So I have a lot of highly educated people in my ward. There's a lot of physicians and scientists and we actually have a PhD virologist Oh, wow. In my ward, and she's doing some interesting research. And I'm like, wow, this is a. But I'm getting less and less attention as a biblical scholar because everyone's going to these other people and asking them like questions about their their field of expertise. I'm feeling a little bit left out. But then what I realized is if this plague gets so bad that you have to call in a biblical expert, then it's really bad. (laughs) So I'm glad that no one's coming to me Mm -hmm. asking me. Is this the end times? Is this what's going on in Revelation? Or is this the first out of 10 plagues? No one's asking me any of those questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but I want to talk a little bit about, do, do you know the Davidic census? Uh, what happened to King David and his, his choice to do a census of the military powers of Israel? Uh, talk about it. I might. Okay. So in Second Samuel chapter 24, it is said that the Lord prompts David, King David, one of the anointed leaders of God's people at that time, literally anointed by a prophet of God, um, and a spiritual leader as well. He uh, was prompted by God, this text says, to census, uh, to number the uh, the adult men of Israel and Judah. Uh, most ended up for the purposes of military power. He wanted to like brag and see how you know see how strong we are and like boast about his. Uh, you know, make Israel great again type of a thing <laughs> here. Like, we're the best. All right. And that was wrong. And what happened was a um, plague. God sent a plague upon Israel and killed 70,000 of the Israelites because of this mistake that David made, uh, this arrogant mistake. Now, what's interesting is the 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 documents of Samuel and Kings are an earlier layer of the tradition. Chronicles was li- written later as a summary and a compendium of, of a lot of stuff that happened before at a much later date in the tradition. So we have different layers of the tradition saying different things about this. In Second Samuel 24, it says that God prompted David to undertake this census. But when you read... First um, Chronicles 21, it says Satan inspired David to take the census. 
And people say, oh, that's a contradiction. And, and in a sense, it is. But what I'm here to say is, look, that when later generations tell the story, they're going to tell it different. And something that an anointed leader of God thought was from God, later generations will say it was from Satan. Wow. Very interesting. Later generations. I'm not going to like say how this applies to anything going on right now. I mean, now, do you have to, though? <laughs> but I just want you to know <laughs> that when later generations tell the story... You know, there's things there's things that we say that you know we read Brigham Young up to Mark Peterson. I'm like right. that was not from God. Like right. we throw them under the bus, and we should. Yeah, yeah. and um, that should give uh, our leaders some humility and some some um, some sense of a little bit of anxiety about proclaiming too boldly and too stubbornly and too arrogantly what they think they know God's will to be. Mm. Very nice. So, yes, that's where my knowledge of plagues in the Bible comes in handy. <laughs> like, if you actually have a plague, don't come to me because I can't yeah. help you. But there you go. Thank you, Derek. Anything else you want to say about uh, the coronavirus? No, other than that this is a very um, – you can – all of your friends who may not know what to do with their Sunday morning, you can say, hey, you can do – some of your home-centered, church-supported work by listening to Beyond the Block podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done, right? Derek. To replace their, um, to replace their gospel doctrine. Um, yeah, have all your friends take. And now people have the time because we went from three-hour church to two-hour church to zero-hour church. Mm-hmm. You can uh, you can have that time to listen to Beyond the Block and and other good podcasts. Yes. Speaking of other good podcasts. Just want to take this opportunity to uh, remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Are we ready to discuss this week's Come Follow Me? Yes. Yeah. There is a lot, man. I'll I'll be honest. I was kind of dreading this one because the allegory of the olive tree, while beautiful, is probably the longest chapter in the Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I've always struggled getting through it because I'm just like, okay, what tree are we on now? What branches does it have on it now? What is happening here? I really had to slow down my reading of this text to fully appreciate what was being said in uh, Zenos' allegory of uh, the olive tree. And, um, you know... I ultimately know what it's about. Like it is ultimately an allegory about redemption and atonement, which explains its placement in this particular narrative as Jacob just spent the last half of chapter four, urging his people to be reconciled to God through Christ. So it's, it's, it's appropriate that he shares Zenos, Zenos's allegory of the olive tree, a big part, the big focus, the overarching point of which seems to be, redemption and atonement so Mm -hmm. i get that much i understand that much but there are so many layers to this story man like so many layers um i don't know if there's any more historical context you want to spin on five through seven before we really dive into it yeah i i don't so i just do want to point out the uh, maxwell institute study edition of the book of mormon it lays it out really well because you've got set it out in paragraphs there are headings that tell you what layer of the story you're on like the first transplant, the second transplant, this is where you've got the first remedy, day, decay and remedy. And there's just these little just little headings that tell you where you are. And I don't really understand 
I have to be honest, exactly what all these details signify. Uh-huh. Like lining it up with some something in the real world. I just take the the overall arc of the narrative and say, look, this tells us about the character of God, the interrelationship between God and the servant. Other than that, I I'm not going to line up all the details uh, with something outside the allegory, which usually that's what an allegory is, is you you have all these features are a code for some other feature in the real world. But I, right, don't, I right. don't know what that is. But I think it's really interesting what it says about God. And I love what what Dr. Fatima's book does with this and says, you know what? There's an actual interplay between the master and the servant. And they, they have a dialogue and there's back and forth and they learn from that each is other. And it's, and it's rare. Only once does the Lord correct the servant. Otherwise, uh-huh. there's a negotiation process here. And right, I think that's right. built into what it's like to be a prophet is to, you know, you have to ask. And, and God is our... Heavenly Father, like what what earthly father would never listen to his kids' needs and and mm-hmm. and adapt to them and say, hey, you know, I I need the car this weekend, and you know, that that's what that's what loving fathers do is they they adjust their plans. Yeah, I think there's some some hope in there for that. Definitely, and I think there's there's a lot of hope for the marginalized in this. Um, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. You can look at, I think Dr. Fatima takes this as uh, laboring for social justice in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, But one thing I like to do is talk about the character of God here. Some people say, well, God has this master plan for people, and it's very narrow, and this mortal world is like a series of booby traps. And the covenant path is really just this narrow path through a whole bunch of booby traps. And if you step one little thingy wrong, you're going to explode on a landmine. And that's not, you see that God does anything and everything to save this tree. Do you mm-hmm. not think he would do the same thing for LGBT people and give them anything and everything they need and find backup plans and alternate and some other workaround and then grafting in and then transplanting? Like just so many different things that when the first thing didn't work, God didn't say, well, too bad. You're just going to die on the vine or this is, this is olives. So die on the tree. Mm-hmm. He says, no. We've got to actually, we've got to do some work. Mm-hmm. We as meaning the the Lord and the Lord's servant, we've got to do some work to make sure that everyone has every possible chance. That's the real problem with Elder Johnson's letter is it doesn't have that character. It doesn't say, I'm going to do everything I can to figure out what, what the place of LGBTs is. It only says what it's not. Right. No gay marriage, no gay sex, and now no dating. Mm-hmm. Other than telling us what not to do, it doesn't tell us what to do. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't done that work. Even from his own perspective, he cannot say, I know what you should do. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I know you should be celibate or I know you should marry a woman. I know you should marry a man. I sh-. He doesn't even say, he doesn't even claim that knowledge. He does not claim a breakthrough on this. And I think that's what you've got here is just a series of breakthroughs. And I think... Like I said, I don't know what all the details line up, but you see the character of God willing to do anything and everything, including weeping over when something didn't work. Right. God is weeping over Elder Johnson's letter right now. He's not the source of it. He's weeping because of it. Mm. So there. What do you think of all that? Or what do you what what do you have to add to that? Well, um, I mean, that's a great way to summarize what we're going to be exploring in these chapters, particularly, well, particularly chapter five, which is the whole allegory of the olive tree. There are a couple of things that I do want to point out and a couple of things that you mentioned that I'm going to return to, especially this one of, uh, you know, God and servant working together and also this idea of 
um, God weeping over mm-hmm. over his efforts. There's a couple themes that I've seen again earlier in our, of our study of the Book of Mormon, but I'll get to those in a, a little bit later. Uh, the first thing I want to point out is actually found in, I believe it's verse 20 or 21. But anyway, at this point in the allegory, the Lord had uh, taken away the original branches of the tame olive tree. That's the one that we start with. And he had planted them in the poorest spot, in the nethermost parts of the vineyard, some in the poorest spot in the vineyard. And they've returned. This is the servant and the Lord of the vineyard. They have returned to that poor spot. Uh, The first branch they behold has brought forth much fruit. Uh, This is 21, I think. It came to pass that the servant said unto the master, How comest thou hither to plant this tree or this branch of this tree? For behold, it was the poor spot in all the land of thy vineyard. And the Lord of the vineyard said unto him, Counsel me not. I knew that it was a poor spot of ground. Wherefore I said unto thee, I have nourished it this long time, and thou beholdest that it hath brought forth much fruit. There is a lot here that we can take out, but I do want to point out something for uh, members of the marginalized communities. The Lord of the vineyard, he gave a gentle rebuke saying that he knew and he reminds the servant that that is why he reminded the servant back in verse 20 of how he nursed it a long time, how he worked so hard on it. Now, sometimes we as laborers in the vineyard, and this is one of the biggest things I learned from Clayton Christensen from his work on member missionary work. Sometimes we as laborers in the vineyard make judgments about who is ready to receive the gospel. Sometimes we look at people in abject circumstances and environments and we tell ourselves that they're not worth the trouble of saving or giving the gospel to, or that they're not ready to receive the gospel. And the Lord reminds us here, he reminded his servant here, that that is not our call to make. And with his power, anyone can thrive. Like notice what he said. He said, this uh, branch was in the poorest spot of ground. And the Lord of the vineyard still was able to make it thrive. It is not a coincidence that many of our strongest members of the church, many many of our most faithful saints, they come from some of the most difficult of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Um, I've quoted the Higher Education Research Institute a couple of times on this show, but it points out that black Americans in particular rate highest in 11 out of 12 spirituality categories and measures. And that's not a coincidence. Like when you are forced to rely on God, when you have to develop some kind of spiritual resilience, when you are put in that position, spiritual resilience is a natural consequence of that. So it doesn't surprise me at all that when the Lord talks about going to the poor spot of ground in the vineyard and then making something put forth a lot of fruit and being able to thrive, that makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Lord is able to do that. So two things I gather from this. One is no matter how sport, no matter how poor your plot of ground is, the Lord can do wonderful things with it. That's one thing. And the other is we are not in any kind of position as servants in this vineyard, as co-laborers with the Lord in this work. We're not really in a position to tell the Lord where to plant. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. The Lord knows what he can do with his vineyard. This is his vineyard. He knows what's possible. So we would do very well to not assume who is and who is not ready to receive the gospel. So that's just, that's that particular one. Do you have any thoughts of that before I move on to the next thing? No, I want to hear what you have next. All right. So this is a theme that you've already uh, talked about. I think this occurs in uh, 2026. So this is interesting to me. Um, And you talk about 
the Lord being willing to be co-laborers with us, there's this instance where we notice that. Uh, the Lord, he demonstrates an ability to work with his servants when we take hold of hope. Meanwhile, the Lord is ready to burn folks. Like, look at what he says in 26. He says, pluck off the branches that have not brought forth good fruit and cast them into the fire. And then the servant says to him in verse 27, let us prune it and dig about it and nourish it a little longer that perhaps it may bring forth good fruit unto thee that thou canst lay it up against the season. So the servant has hope and further he appeals to the desires of the Lord of the vineyard. The Lord of the vineyard regularly says, let me dig about this. Let me prune it that I may lay up fruit unto myself against the season. You know what I'm saying? Like that is an element that we regularly see throughout here is not only does the servant express hope when the Lord wants to cast everything off into the fire, but he always leads everything back to what the Lord ultimately wants at the end of the day, which is to lay it against, uh, bring forth good fruit unto thee that thou canst lay it up against the season. So uh, this brought to mind something that we see later on in the Book of Mormon, in the Book of Helaman, when uh, Nephi, son of Helaman, um, he gets the sealing power and the Lord tells him that you have done everything right. You've done so well that I will do literally anything you ask me to do because I know you won't ask me to do something which is against my will. Mm -hmm. And in the next chapter, something very interesting happens. The Lord is ready to smite his people with a war. And then Nephi, son of Helaman is like, no, don't, let's not have a war. Let's have a famine instead. Like that'll be sufficient to stir people up into remembrance against you. Um, so basically, Nephi, son of Helaman, he's trying to find, he's trying to work with the Lord to ultimately say, I want to bring people to you. I want to give people an opportunity to be saved. I want to give people an opportunity to receive the gospel. We don't have to destroy them with a war. I think a famine would really mm. do what is necessary in order to stir people in remembrance of thee. And the Lord acquiesces. Like that's an example mm. of a servant of the Lord importuning the Lord for something different than what the Lord had planned. The Lord was ready to destroy everybody. Like in this particular allegory, he was ready to pluck off these branches and burn them. But the servant was like, spare it a little longer. Let's prune about it. Let's, let's dig about it. Let's prune it. And let's see if we can't bring some more fruit. Like that's what that made me think of was that instance in uh, Helaman where Nephi, son of Helaman, in essence, asked the Lord to spare the people and to give them a famine instead. And it's successful. So uh, there is that element of mm -hmm. the Lord being willing to acquiesce to our needs so that we can bring more fruit to him, as it were. Did you have any more you wanted to say about that? Because I know you yeah, brought that up before. I, I like this. Well, I want to connect this with what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. Because okay. Romans 11 also has um, the use of... In here, it's about the Jews and the Gentiles, that the the children of Israel are like a cultivated olive tree, and then God grafts in the wild olive tree, which represents the Gentiles, right? and then that really stimulates the whole thing to grow into one, and then that might actually make the, um, the rest of the branches bear more fruit. And what's, in, what's interesting thing about that is Paul makes a big point about how that is technically unnatural. Here's still in Romans 11? Yeah, still in Romans 11, verse 24. This is the New English translation. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature, in Greek that is 
So we've got katafusin is in accordance with nature and parafusin, which is against nature. So these are grafted against nature. And this parafusin, the only other time Paul uses that prepositional phrase is guess where? Romans chapter 1. Ah. When he talks about what allegedly people use against same-gender relationships mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. against nature, that's the same same thing here. I see. So what he's saying is God is doing something literally against nature. For if you, meaning you Gentiles, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? And the point is, here, Paul's making the point is, the natural branches may have been temporarily cut off, but he's going he's gonna to let them back in too. He's going to let everyone back in, mm. right, who wants to be. And we're going to make one big olive tree. Some of it was going to be the original domesticated, and some of it will be wild grafted in. I'm like, this is so beautiful because what he's doing is transcending not – you know, he's transcending what people's expectations are. He's transcending, like, even the the natural course of nature, right? He's saying we're doing something, and he, we're doing it because of the effect. If you look at what we have in Jacob 5 and what it says about the character of God, there's no way that the God that I know would hold, hold back, you know, same-gender ceilings from us if that's what we need to to be grafted into the same deal that straight people have in the church. Mm. Like, what would hold God back? He's willing to do everything to to get his hands dirty with dung and dirt. Right. Right? A God who would do that is going to do anything and everything to make sure that, that we have a fair chance at getting back in. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that to me, that's, that's really clear. And I don't know if anyone has really brought that out in J- Jacob 5 before, its usefulness for the queer community. I don't think so. I don't think so. There's a lot of applications in this allegory alone for all kinds of things. And it's like the straight people in the church thinking, oh, God's got this one little plan. If it doesn't work, whoops, that's all the, that's all the plan we have. Right. Like that's all the proclamation we have. That's all the scripture we have. And there can be no more. And there can be no more, right? <laughs> but like you, if, if one thing isn't enough or what doesn't work out, you've got all these pages and pages of, of details that I don't actually understand. <laughs> of what God is doing to to do anything and everything he can for his his people. And I, I'm like, that's the God that I know. That's the God that I'm trusting my unknown future to this known God uh-huh. who will never stand for this idea that queer people will be cut off forever and have no hope of uniting and sealing our families. Like, why wouldn't God do it? Like, there's nothing—I th- I mean, I don't think the problem is with God. I think uh, there's there's the issue of a lot of people have this idea of, oh, you just try one thing. If it doesn't work, you give up. Mm. And the one thing is, well, everyone needs to be or- sealed in heterosexual pairs. I'm like, well, we've even had exceptions to that, too, right? Mm-hmm. Um where you have people who are uh, ad- adoptive-based ceilings where you've sealed men to men as father and son, even though they weren't related. There's just so many exceptions and so many ways of, I love how expansive Joseph's vision is, and I'm a little bit saddened by how restrictive and narrow some of our contemporary cultural assumptions are, that there's only one way that this can look. Right. So that's kind of what I had. Okay, cool, man. Well, then I'm going to go ahead and move on to 
I guess, verses 32 through 34 here. Now, what's happening at this point in the story is they have grafted branches in. They have um, grafted the natural branches into the nethermost parts of the of the field. They pruned them. They've dug about them. Uh, they've grafted young tame branches in other parts. They've grafted they've grafted wild branches into the tame olive tree, and they've left uh, they've left the vineyard. They're returning to it, and they have come back to realize that none of the fruit is good. Starting in verse thirty two. This time it hath brought forth much fruit, and there is none of it which is good. And behold, there are all kinds of bad fruit, and it profiteth me nothing, notwithstanding all our labor. And now it grieveth me that I should lose this tree. And the Lord of the vineyard said unto the servant, What shall we do unto the tree, that I might preserve again good fruit thereof unto mine own self? So there's this part uh, that you were talking about earlier, Derek, this interplay between master and servant, where the Lord is literally asking his servant, What should we do now? Like, what should we do now? This is very um, reminiscent of the Lord asking Jared what he wants to do about getting across. Sorry, the brother of Jared about what he wants to do to get across the great waters. Uh, Moving on to verse 34. And the servant said unto his master, Behold, thou didst graft in the branches of the wild olive tree. They have nourished the roots that they are alive and they have not perished. Wherefore, thou beholdest that they are yet good. I I could go on for a little bit, but there's a couple things in this section of verses uh, worth noting. Now, to uh, hearken back to Nephi, the Nephi son of Helaman example, the fact that the Lord asked for advice of the servant ought to say something about the strength of their relationship and the trust that is present in that relationship. It should also know how involved the servant is in this process. The servant clearly cares about this vineyard as much, like almost as much, if not as much, as uh, the Lord of the vineyard. But the other theme is one that uh, we came across during, you know, the story of Lehi's family uh, and their sojourn in the wilderness. And that theme is that our best efforts may not yield the desired result. And I don't know that there was a better story than Nephi's broken bow that taught us that regardless of how obedient we are or how much we do the right thing, we can still catch these afflictions. I think that's what I said last time we discussed uh, that particular chapter. Now, the allegory of the olive tree takes things further in saying that this happens even to God himself. Like God himself does everything right, does the hard work of pruning and digging about and grafting and nourishing. Yet when he returns, every branch is putting forth bad fruit. And that's pretty grim. Like as grim as that is, that's that's uh, that's very encouraging to me as someone who has sunk a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of time and a lot of money into projects only to get less than stellar results. Like this allegory teaches us that. The meritocracy is a myth and success isn't necessarily inevitable that just because we do everything right and work hard. It's not even that way for God. So why would it be that way for us? And I feel folks on the margins know this better than most people. Most of us have known mm-hmm. for quite some time that we can never take for granted that our hard work can, you know, amount to can amount to nothing. Like there's this expression and I don't know who's who it's attributed to, but it's something along the lines of if every, if anyone could get ahead just on hard work and enterprise, then every woman in Africa would be a millionaire. You know, like there is something to be said of being able to acknowledge that just because you do everything right, just because you play by the rules, just because you're obedient, 
Just because you do everything, that, d- that doesn't mean that things are necessarily going to work out for you. The Lord of the vineyard did everything right. God did everything right. God does not make mistakes, and yet things can still turn out to be so poor that he's caused to weep. You know, like that is mm-hmm. extremely profound to me. Just this idea that if God has to deal with it, then so do we. We have to ultimately make peace with the fact that sometimes our best efforts are not going to yield the best results or the intended results. And that's not necessarily on us. I'm not saying that in a way that is intended to absolve people of responsibility for their actions. I'm just saying that we can put a lot of effort into making a relationship work or trying to get that job or trying to get into that school or trying to get that one project off the ground that we've been trying to do forever. And that still might not work out. And that doesn't mean like that doesn't mean that it's all on us or that doesn't mean that we're failures. God is not a failure. Like God did not view him, does not view himself as a failure when we do not go the way that he wants us to go. You know what I'm saying? So um, anyway, all is to say that uh, there are going to be moments in our lives where we want to say to ourselves, what more could we have done? Like the Lord of the vineyard said, what more could I have done for my vineyard? But it's not always about us and it's not always going to be it's not always going to be because we're failures. We're not necessarily failures because things don't work out the way we intended. Mm-hmm. I think that's the primary thing I wanted to say about that verse. Yeah, I think this is a, a lot of this is connected with people's agency. And I, I think there's we have to say that in some sense, God is limited by our agency. And Certainly. He's not controlling everything like a puppet. We're not predestined. He's not sovereign in the way that the Calvinists think of he's micromanaging everything and res- ultimately responsible for right. all the details of the world because that would make God out to this this monster. We're not pets in this grand terrarium. And so I think there's there's room for God. You know how I said I think it was last week that par- to par- part of love is being able to be surprised by the thing that you love. Yeah. yeah. I think it, that may be true here for God that God leaves room for for us to surprise him. Um, cause if he's not surprised, if he, if he, if he runs us like a robot, that's not really love, but he is waiting for us, you know, to use our agency for good. And I think that's, he delights in, in seeing that from us. But on the other hand, that does give some limitations to God that we can't blame God for everything that happens. We can't blame, you know, the racism of the church on God and say, well, right. God, let it happen. And God right. did it. Or even God ordained it. I mean, like. God forbid that's that we should never say that. Right. Right. And we have to realize, you know, that 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 in certain in a certain practical sense, it could be helpful to say that God has weaknesses, too, in the way that it plays out. And though that's that's I think explains why God weeps, because if God were in control of everything, he wouldn't have anything to weep about. (laughs) Yeah. Right. But he lets he lets go and and gives space for agency and gives space to be surprised by us, and I think he's weeping over um, what has happened in our church. You know, we do a, the, uh, our church does a, a lot of good things, and I don't want to discount those, but we have to hold that hand in hand with the, with this tension of you know the, our church is is run by imperfect people who have agency and are not micromanaged by God and God is not dictating to them like a telegraph. Mm -hmm. 
um, and mistakes do happen, and then we shouldn't use those mistakes to deny the work of God through those um, human fallible people. Mm, definitely. There's something also at the uh, end of this particular, I suppose, this lament of God that Dr. Fatima points out that I definitely want to make sure is mentioned here because to me it's super powerful in you know, in the lives of many different people, but for people on the margins, especially those who are engaged in doing any kind of activist work, there are a couple things that happen here that are worth mentioning. The Lord of the Vineyard, he acknowledges that this work is difficult and he talks about all the hard work that he's done. And then he states his grief that, uh, that what he has done has not yielded the intended result. And then when he gets to the end of his, uh, when he uh, gets to the end of his lament, we're in verse, verse 50. The servant comes in clutch again, and uh, something very profound happens here. Something very powerful happens. The Lord asks for like the third and final time, what could I have done more for my vineyard? And the servant said unto the Lord of the vineyard, verse 50, spare it a little longer. And then the Lord says in verse 51, Yea, I will spare it a little longer, for it grieveth me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. There's nothing new that the servant has to offer. There are no new ideas. There's nothing special here. Sometimes the answer, when you have done all you can do, and the yielded result has not come to pass, all you can do is spare it a little longer. All you can do is hold on for a little longer. All you can do is just keep moving forward a little longer. That's the answer when we have uh, a great work to do, when it seems hopeless and we've done all we can do, sometimes the best answer is just to keep moving forward. In activist work, in our own lives, when life is hard, sometimes the answer is just spare it a little longer. Um, I saw Papa O post something the other day, and um, I don't know if it was mentioning or acknowledging any particular population in particular, but uh, it was definitely something about suicide when people are in these dark spaces, I, the, the post in essence said something along the lines of, hang on, you are loved, you are needed. Hang on a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. We can make it through this together. This is a dark moment, but please hang on. And like sometimes that's all you can ask for. That's all you can say. So um, I, I just wanted to put that out there, that sometimes the only answer after you've done everything you can do mm-hmm. is to spare it a little mm-hmm. longer. Right, because you never know what options may arise shortly in the future. And that's what we see play out in the rest of this story. We see what options present themselves in the future. We see the result by the end of, uh, I mean, this is 20 verses later, but ultimately everything does work out. And I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here. I don't know if there's anything you want to point out, Derek, between. Okay, but basically we are going to get to the point where ultimately the garden is redeemed. They come up with a... They spare it a little longer, they keep working, and ultimately the whole vineyard is bringing forth good fruit again, and the natural branches are grafted back into the tame olive tree, and everything works out. This is the redemptive and atoning part of the story, of the allegory of the olive tree. So we do see that there's merit Mm -hmm. in just persisting in the work, even when there aren't really necessarily any new ideas. Sometimes the answer is just push forward, and as we see in the remainder of the story of the allegory of the olive tree, things work out, things are redeemed, and f- good fruit is produced once again. Yeah, that's a really good way. I don't know if you had anything more on 
Jacob 5. I had one thing that I wanted to say from Jacob 7. Okay, that's I cool. I don't know if we're ready to get go there or not. about to say, because Jacob 6 is mostly a summary and an application of the allegory, the olive tree to mm-hmm. the Nephites. I definitely want to get into Jacob chapter 7 today because there's a lot in there as well. Yeah, the first thing I wanted to point out was, so we're in Jack, Jacob chapter 7, um, and this is, we've got Sherem, this Antichrist, um, who was learned, and I, I feel a little bit weird when the learned people go bad, but oh well, <laughs> we can't all be good. Um, so that uh, Sherem had a perfect knowledge of the language of the people, he could use much flattery, much power of speech according to the power of the devil. Verse 5, and he had hoped to shake me from the faith, notwithstanding the many revelations and the many things which I had seen concerning these things. For truly I had seen angels, and they had ministered unto me. And also I had heard the voice of the Lord speaking unto me in very word from time to time, wherefore I could not be shaken. You know, the LGBT dignity and humanity is under attack and can be very easily shaken if we let it. Mm-hmm. And I think knowing your foundation is what what brought Jacob through uh, Sherem's attempt to seduce him away from knowing what he knew. Mm. I think when you when you take away all of the things we've been told deep down, we LGBTs know that we're fine the way we are, and ho- holding deeply onto that and being firmly rooted in who we are by Christ is is the way to um to not be shaken by by this uh by what what Sherem is is doing or what anyone else would do to us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's this an element of flattery that has to be um connected with privilege because oh, definitely. He says that word twice and I don't think that's insignificant here. Right, because I think there's a sense in which which um an antichrist could go up to these, you know, straight, wealthy, white men in the church and say, look, I'm going to stroke your ego. You've got it. You're OK. Like you, you're you made it. And like, who cares who else makes it? You've got yours. Why do you need to get? I mean, there's a sense of flattery like, oh, you're right with God. You're you're on the right track. You um, and that's flattery to say that 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 you have arrived and like right to say that that I think there's. Yeah, it's just really tough to what it is is it's it's boosting up their ego and it's boosting up their their sense of pride, not in the good way like gay pride, right. but pride in the bad way of like thinking that you've got it all and you can afford to be stubborn and stiff-necked and not turn your neck to listen to the anguished cries of your neighbor. Yeah. yeah. That's that's where this flattery comes in. And I think that's um really all I had to say about chapter 7. Well, I just really liked how, uh, you know, we, I, I think Jacob's particular tactic, or sorry, not Jacob, but Sherem's particular tactic and how he led people away is of note here. Um, like, th- this is verse 7, I think. And this is um, this is a common tactic that we see people using today in the church with regard to appealing to people's pride to to using flattery so what sherem says here this is sherem speaking in verse seven ye have led away much of this people that they pervert the right way of god and keep not the law of moses which is the right way 
and convert the law of Moses into the worship of a being which ye shall say, which ye say shall come many hundred years hence. And behold, I share him, declare unto you that this is blasphemy, for no man knoweth of such things, for ye cannot tell of things to come. And after this manner did Sherem contend against me. Sherem is using scripture to speak against Jacob. You know, this is probably one of the most insidious tactics that anybody in or out of the church could use against, uh, you know, God's people, is using their own scripture to, in essence, say, that there's something wrong with them. I don't know how many times we've said it on this show, and perhaps this is why you didn't want to address it, Derek, but, you know, I think it's worth mentioning again that one of the greatest evils and one of the greatest sins I feel that people can commit is transmogrifying the law of God in order to deny people his love. And uh, that seems to be what Sherem is doing here. He is literally weaponizing the word of God against the people of Christ. And... That is, I mean, we, we see that happen all too often today. We see members of the LGBTQ community being told that their dispossession mm-hmm. is ordained of God. We saw this with, uh, you know, member, with black members of the church pre-1978. We heard people, and we still hear it today, unfortunately. We, heard, we, we hear people mm-hmm. affirming that the priesthood mm-hmm. and temple restrictions were ordained of God. And, you know, that is a horrible sin. I think I've heard you say, Derek, that this is how people take the name of God in vain mm-hmm. is when yeah. they use, in fact, you may have even said it last week in talking about the letter, but this is basically putting God's name on your own bigotry. Right. And that's what we see Sherem doing. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. bigotry, but what he's doing is he is invoking the name of God. He is invoking scripture mm-hmm. to discard the name of Christ. Yeah, and I want to name something. And as well, we uh, there's people using... Uh, the scriptures or our tradition to enforce women having a, a lesser role or place in the church. Oh like, yeah, this this ru- this is running into an issue like on the ground in terms of if we do if women are not ordained to priesthood offices, then they are not. So here's what happened uh, in many stakes throughout the world. Probably something like this policy will be instituted now that we're all doing home church. People who are ordained as a priest or a Melchizedek priesthood office will be able to bless the sacrament in their own homes for their mm. families and for themselves. Um, and that may be there may be similar policies like that throughout the world. That's what it's going to be in my stake. But what's going to happen to, uh, for whatever reason, we have there may be um, women with no priesthood holder in their home and in a in a time of we don't want there to be a lot of social interaction obviously we want to visit people who need those visits but there's a sense in which women now uh may through no fault of their own be deprived of having the sacrament as regularly as men mm. That's mm. real. Does like there's a, st- a, a a guideline that says we'll make sure that you're ministering people get around to getting everyone who wants to having the sacrament once a month. Does God love men four times as much as he loves women that men should be able to partake of the sacrament every week. Right. And women, you know, once a month, once, once they're, once the men get around to doing it, like, no, I'm Mm -hmm. like this, this is real. And people say, well, we, here's a, here's a practical thing on the ground where this differential in access leads to a real, practical, on-the-ground, emotionally vivid, t- 
tangible result. And it's not a matter of saying, well, women have their role and it's childbirth or whatever, and men have their role. This shows a difference. Mm. And I'm like, yeah. And, and people are using the scriptures and their tradition to justify discrimination of women in our church. Mm. I just want to name that. Cool. Thank you for thank you for drawing attention to that. That is a that's huge. Uh, the last thing I want to uh, put uh, point out here is actually something that uh, Dr. Fatima also points out near the end of uh, Jacob chapter seven, and I can't believe I'm I'm like mad at myself for never seeing this, but this is something I've been saying for a while, but I didn't know there was a justification for it to be found in the Book of Mormon. So this is uh, near the end of chapter seven. This is when Jacob has more or less determined that it's time to reclaim the Lamanites. This is in uh, verse 24. And it came to pass that many means were devised to reclaim and restore the Lamanites to the knowledge of the truth, but it was all vain, for they delighted in wars and bloodshed, and they had an eternal hatred against us, their brethren. And they sought by the power of their arms to destroy us continually. Um... So let's just acknowledge what we're seeing in Jacob chapter 7. Jacob chapter 7, we're talking about reclamation of the Lamanites. Just three, four chapters ago, we were just talking about how much the Nephites did not like the Lamanites because of their skin color and their filthiness. Mm -hmm. Like, that's quite a 180 to take. But it makes sense when you consider how not long ago that was, why these missions would not be successful. Like, if you were just talking about three chapters ago how much you don't like, how much the Nephites don't like the Lamanites because of their skin color, what do you think was going to happen when you tried to minister to them, when you tried to convert them to the gospel? Why do you have to, quote-unquote, devise all these different means of trying to reclaim them? Like, that's not how this works. We don't devise means to reclaim a people. Like, I, I think about this all the time in terms of why I don't see more black people at church. And it makes, I mean, sadly, it still makes sense to me because where I see that there are so many people in my congregation or so many people in the church that are not equipped to discuss about, to discuss issues of racism, where they're not discuss, prepared to discuss issues of uh, why the priesthood and temple restriction existed in the church, where so many members of the church still have an issue with hearing the phrase Black Lives Matter, where so few of the church members feel comfortable going into communities of color and just serving them. Like, you know, it doesn't surprise me that our missions to the black community are still relatively unsuccessful. Just, and I'm saying that based on how few black people mm -hmm, I see mm -hmm. at church when I go to church on Sunday. Like, you cannot... You cannot share the message of the gospel to communities affected by the same injustices that we are ourselves complicit in. Like, that's just not going to work. And that's the whole point of, or I believe that's the whole point of why uh, this mission from the Nephites to the Lamanites was ultimately ineffective. It's very hard to preach the message of the gospel to a people that your people hate. And I, I love what you just pointed out. And I, I think you've mentioned before this idea that we in the church should should see missionary work in America uh, to black people almost as a foreign mission. That right. there should be training around yes. cultural competency. Yes. You should realize you're crossing some language barriers. You should like we should put all 
like all of this effort that we put yes. into training. Like you won't believe how many people come back from their mission and now they're the world's expert on like Armenia, right? What is that all like, about? And they had never heard of Armenia before. They right, you know. And now you're fluent in the language. <laughs> you're fluent in their history. You're fluent in their customs. Like, right, and 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 having a sensitivity of a, around the history, the the background, even the worship styles of the people in whatever religion is predominant in that place. It makes sense to do the the same for um, black people in the American context. Mm -hmm. And our missionaries are still spending only three weeks in the MTC in preparation for their missions to Atlanta. Like, and you know what? There isn't. Uh, there's there's nothing for the evangelism of LGBT people. Right. There's that nothing. simply does not you exist. Know, there's the Mormon and gay website, but that's not designed to as outreach to gays. It's right. designed as like, oh, you're already in the church and you're, you know, how do you wrestle with coming out? How do you wrestle with your parents? Like there's nothing that says, how do we take the preach my gospel stuff? And like there's preach my gospel available in these other languages. Yeah. Um, but there is no there are no resources. As far as I know, there are no resources that are directed at bringing LGBT people to the restored gospel in Christ. Mm. None. Like, like this is not doing what what the landowner did in Jacob 5. The landowner did anything and everything from like 10,000 different ways to reach someone, and we're not doing that. For, I think they've just said, look, you're disposable. Mm. We, You can be written off. You don't want to be here. We don't want you here just do whatever you want. And I yeah. think that actually was the real thing behind um the November 2015 policy. Mm. Because it was like, oh yeah, you don't you don't have to be baptized into our church. You can just you can just go on and have a life out of the church. I'm like, no, that's not good <laughs> enough. Right. Right. If it's good enough for straight people, it should be good enough for gay people. Correct. So we need to um and I think Missionary work among LGBTs is going to be so difficult. I mean, it is difficult, mm -hmm. but even there needs to be like another six discussions <laughs> that you have to have on at top of at least six. I'm surprised yeah. you said six. Only six, Derek. I think there are there are tremendous amounts of like resources from the scripture that have enabled me to join the church. And if I put them together in a series of six discussions, like I would go over some, a lot of the same things like Cornelius, like mm -hmm. there, there would be just filled and packed with examples that will help LGBTs know their birthright in this church. Yeah. And yeah. there's no resources like that. No. Uh, uh, I mean, there's a, our podcast, so there's that. <laughs> I mean, I would love to have more yeah. LGBT converts. Yes. That'd be great. But we there's just here. so few of us. So few of us. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate. We we do what we can, though. Yeah, Derek? Yeah. Yeah. All right. On that note, we are going to go ahead and uh, wrap things up. Before we do, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue and Journal of Mormon Thought is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek, to wrap up the show, what 
we got a couple housekeeping items. Can you remind people where to find us? Yes, you can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can uh, search for us on all the major uh, streaming platforms. And you can also see uh, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. If there's nothing else, we will talk to you guys next week. Yep, talk to you next week. Bye.